Hey guys, it's Scott from fxmissions.com. Just a note, I've finished the trilogy of anthologies from the forefront, and all three books are currently available on Amazon. Welcome to From the Forefront, an FX Missions podcast. Stories about courageous souls who felt the call of missions and obeyed. Hi, Scott McClelland here. Thanks for joining the FX Missions from the Forefront podcast. Uh, please do uh, share with others about From the Forefront. Rate us on iTunes, uh, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your content, and let us know how we can serve you better. We're pretty excited today, and, and kind of thankful might be a, a good way to say it, to be joined by a friend of a few years now, Guy Yasika. Guy, did I say that right? Absolutely perfect. Yasika, Yasika. Something tells me that's Asian. People think that, but uh, no, it's uh, it's not. It's uh, European. Okay. Well, I, I had you uh, Japanese roots here, man. Thanks for oh. <laughs> thanks for uh, so. What is the roots of Yasika? Polish? Polish, Serbian. It kind of got truncated in uh, at Ellis Island, so uh, don't know <laughs> the actual name. But uh, okay, all okay. the are related, so uh, because of misspellings and stuff. Well, yeah, Ellis Island. Uh, there, there was a lot of oh, I can't spell that. We're going to make that Smith. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think some of that went on anyway. Uh, at least I imagine it to be so. Thanks for joining us, Guy. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you've got something of an interesting story, and folks who uh, who are listening today are in for a treat, I believe. We really appreciate you taking a, a, some time aside here and uh, just get into a little bit here, if we can, about your uh your background, you know, where you're from, uh, maybe some of your family history. Sure. I'm, uh, I guess, now the days, Northeast guy. I live in Jersey, bulk of my life. was born in Cleveland. So I say, tell people all the time, I got a laid back attitude. I just got to hurry up about it. <laughs> <laughs> I've been in sales, technical sales, the bulk of my life here in the Northeast. We're selling in New York City and now in uh, the Philadelphia region right now, currently mm -hmm. in the uh, the telco environment, right? Well, that and that's how we know each other because that's you know that's the world I'm in. We met a few years ago, and uh, I considered you a friend all along, and really appreciate uh, everything you've done to help us. And also finding out more about your story has been uh, captivating. Might be a good way to put it. So, were you born in Cleveland? Yeah, I was born right outside uh, the airport in a little town called Brook Park, which is not so little anymore. It uh, was one of those post-50s development. I was born in 56, so after the World War II, one of these development areas. And it just mm -hmm. it just not the same. Went back a few years ago. It's just not the same place. Wow, wow, wow. That's the way it works, huh? All that stuff called development is just growing. I guess Cleveland's right there on a main uh, – is that the lake it's on there? Yeah, back back when I was, you lived in the area. We we weren't even allowed to touch the water in, in the lake because the dead fish were slapping up. When we went back with my kids just a while back ago, we uh we saw people water skiing on Lake Erie. So it's just it the, the whole area changed quite a bit. 
Wow. Well, either they got braver or it got cleaned up or maybe both. That's that's wild. Now, Jersey, you spent a good bit of time in New York City and Jersey area and then now in Philly. So, you know, that's kind of the opposite of where I'm from. And yet we're friends. I'm, I'm proud of us for that. <laughs> it's the human connection, right? That's what it's all about. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, in, in, in Christ, you know, we find the brotherhood, uh, you know, it's interesting to me that in Christ, there is a context. He created a context between us for a relationship to be cultivated. There is a real foundation there in him for that. And uh, I've been able to cultivate that in different places around the world. Super thankful to find that and take advantage of it. So thanks. That's been a pleasure with you as well. Um, and I don't think we as Christians do enough of that, to be honest with you. I think being bound together as a body of Christ, I think we need to do a better job of of helping each other, encouraging each other and doing whatever God is you know, pushing us to do. This being an example, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. And I think a lot of times when we take the time to make a small investment in that space that we're sometimes surprised by the gratification and the sort of reward or how it builds us up, and we mischaracterize it as something special or unique when I think what's unique or special is that we've taken time to make an investment and we get the, wherever we make an investment in Christ's body, it's going to yield a return. So I think that we got to focus on that, just like you're saying. 100% agree. Amen. So, hey, tell us a little bit about your hobbies, your interests. Give us that thousand foot view of what you like, what you like to do. I guess uh, historically, I'm kind of a workaholic. I put a lot of passion into what I do for a living. And I think that's been bad and good to a large degree. Mm-hmm. Today, I own a, a small farm down in South Jersey. When I say small, I'm, you know, I mean like 10 acres. Mm-hmm. And it's just a couple of uh, my wife fancies herself a uh, she calls it sheep to shawl. So we got a bunch of sheep, a couple of alpacas. We get the fiber off of that. She turns it into wool and turns that into a sweater or a scarf or, or, or other stuff. Wow. We have a rescue horse, a couple of rescue donkeys out here. And it's more uh, more labor of love than it is a profitability thing. There is no profit in farming, as every farmer in this country could tell you, <laughs> small or large. <laughs> yeah. But that's probably the most unique thing about me is is the farm. You know, I've got okay. five kids, uh, three beautiful daughters, two wonderful stepsons. You know, it's uh, eleven grandkids today and counting. So awesome! I've been uh, truly blessed. Wow! Yes, you have. That's that's really cool. I didn't know that you had uh, that size family, but congratulations on three daughters. That's I've got three daughters. So we we stopped the train at that point. So here we are, almost got them raised. So we're thankful for that. Oh, the, fun, the fun's yet to begin. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what they tell me, especially from a grand, grandchildren standpoint. I, I uh, My oldest is in her upper 20s. She's been married for uh, uh, about four years now, and so we're we look on with interest. Let me just say, <laughs> let me say it that way. Especially my wife is looking on with interest about the possibility of grandkids. They're such a blessing. We have grandkids day here on the farm, and it is the most wonderful day of my life each year. They're all together. Mm-hmm. We build obstacle courses. They do things they can't do up in North Jersey. They shoot bow and arrows. They 
we set up a ninja course that they run around and experiment and do things their parents wouldn't normally let them do. We have fireworks at the end of the day. It's uh, it's quite an event and just an amazing day of just family. I love it. I I, I love it. That is wonderful. That that's really cool and a neat thing that you guys are doing. That they will remember that for the rest of their lives. I'm sure of it. That was my wife's wow. idea. Rather than have a bunch of individual, you know, little things, let's just make one big whoop de doo day. Mm. Bring a clown in, or horseback riding, or a magician, or whatever it takes uh, to entertain them in part, and uh, provide some other entertainment. Just let them run around a farm and you know do things they wouldn't, they couldn't do up north. Awesome! Yeah, that's that's cool. That's cool. Well, you know, I I just thought about this in this way. So hopefully this just doesn't sound too weird. But in some ways, you're a unique guy. And I know you've had, as we all have, unique and, and you know, impactful life experiences. But I would think you're a, you're a person with a really unique situation because you are one of, I don't know, maybe you know the number. You're, you're one of a few people, I guess, who are in Tower One yeah. on 9-11. Not a few. There were close to 80,000 people in the building that, that morning on Tower One alone. So... Right. Well, I, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know there were that many people in there and you happen to be, thank God you're a survivor. And I'm sure that every, every person that survived that has a story to tell you without, you know, no exception to that. Uh, How many people were in the building when the plane, uh, that tower one was hit first. Am I correct? That's correct. Okay. So how many people do you know? How many people were in the building when that happened? The buildings, they say, at full occupancy do about uh, do about 100,000. And uh, uh-huh. planes hit right around 20 of, 25 of nine. So they weren't they weren't at full occupancy just yet. So the guesstimates are around between 70 and 80,000 physically in the building. You know, that doesn't count, you know, mm. power two or the numbers around the building or the numbers in, uh, in the mall below or anything like that. I mean, there are, you're talking hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. Wow. I've got some, you know, some questions surrounding this content. Can you give us just a quick rundown? And, and also, you know, I know you've got a, a more thorough written testimony that we can make available with a link in the show notes here. So folks can get to that so they can read in detail everything that you went through. But I'm guessing it was a normal day on September 11, 2001, before 830 Eastern time. It was a beautiful day. We were talking about we were talking about where we were going to eat lunch and how wonderful it was outside. It was a wonderful late summer, early fall, whichever you want to look at it day. It was going to be about 80 degrees. The skies were blue and just was setting up to be gorgeous. Man. And I, do I understand right there was something that happened? I, I've read your testimony a few times and watched some of the video content that you've also made. But there was something unusual about your morning routine uh, that morning. Yeah. So the... My, my, I had to be in the office early, so I was at my desk for a, a call at 8.30. I had a, a conference call set up with my boss and a, a, a large Fortune 50 company we were doing business with. I got the call at 8.30, and my boss said, call's been canceled. So I was like, oh, great. I got in you know, a little early for nothing. So guys came into the office just right after that call and asked if I wanted to go down to the cafeteria on the 43rd floor to have some breakfast. And 
I just had half an hour cleared up on my schedule. So I said, sure, why not? And uh, it was very fortuitous that that happened. Now, what floor would were you working on day to day? Our offices were on the 78th floor of Tower One, which was about 10 stories, eight stories below from where the plane entered the building. Had I stayed, I would have had an, a bird's eye view of the wheels of the plane or the underbelly of the plane. My word. Wow. So you got a freed up schedule. The call was canceled. I hear some hallelujahs in the <laughs> in the uh, atmosphere here uh, related to that, and you you got a got a chance to go down to breakfast, which you did. Were you on uh, that cafeteria floor when uh, when the plane made impact? Yeah, we had just sat down. I got a I had Pepsi and a granola, some things you just remember, right? Yeah. Sat down. The plane hit. The building was moving in a very big way. In fact, I grabbed the desk for or the table in front of me for stability because that's how much torque was in the building when it when it got when it was impacted. And you had the feeling that you know the building was falling over. Of course, the buildings were designed this way, and in a good windstorm, those buildings would move ten feet either way. But a plane hit mm. it. It moved significantly further than that. And even on the forty-third yeah. floor, you could feel. You could feel the difference. Thank God it, it didn't fall over. I, I honestly believe that was what was trying to get done was I honestly believe they were trying to get, if you look at the way they hit the hit the buildings from one side and then the other side, they were trying to push them over one way or the other to provide mm. maximum carnage. Yeah. But uh, to God's grace, the building didn't go down. It sprang back up. It stayed up and kind of where the story wow. starts, right? Yeah, well, now on in how long did it take before the building stabilized in terms of swaying after impact? Was that a thirty seconds or a few minutes? Uh, it was it was fairly quick, um, time wise, because you start going into what the heck's going on mode. Mm -hmm. Probably probably less than a minute, like maybe thirty seconds, forty five seconds. Right. And so what what happened as soon as you got your bearings, or at least what part of your bearings you could get at that point? What was the next thing that happened? From my perspective, uh, for me, I got on my knees. I just, I, I didn't know what happened at that point in time. We, we knew there was something bad going on. We could look out the windows and see things starting to fall down from, you know, the upper stories. I just got on my knees in the middle of the cafeteria, prayed, and uh, thank God for surviving whatever just happened. Because I honestly thought the building was going over. I mean, I didn't think we were mm -hmm. going to survive. When we got up, the room, when I got up off my knees, the room was just about emptied. It was just the three of us at the table. The cafeteria workers were gone. And I didn't, you know, it's, it's funny. People tell you to take notice of emergency exits for a reason, because in the uh, in the heat of the moment, you really don't know where they are. You got you get a little confused. So we eventually found them. And by the time we got to the stairwell, it was, uh, it was a very crowded space, as you could imagine, with 80,000 or 70,000 people trying to get out of a building. How wide would you say that stairwell was? I mean, give us a help us visualize what you experienced when you were able to get out into the stairwell. Is that about? Is that a ten foot wide? Is that a twenty foot wide? I mean, how many people standing shoulder to shoulder could fit across that space? It was it was a comfortable two by two descent. You didn't you could do three potentially if you want to be crowded, but we went down in, in rows of twos. Each person have grabbed. Okay, yeah, that's the way it worked out. Okay, so you stepped into what was a law, a flow of humanity. Am, am I right? It was amazing how many people were in the were in the stairwell already. It was shocking. Wow. So did you did you 
pretty quickly get queued up and start moving or was it immediate when you got in that space? Um, people were, you know, people didn't know what happened. Right. So uh-huh. no, there was no rush to the stairs. There was nobody running down the stairs. There was nobody screaming anything. It was, you know, okay, this is uh, as relatively order of an exit as you could possibly imagine. Before we got into the build, into the stairwell, there was a woman that was very anxious, um, not because of anything that occurred, but she is claust- she's highly claustrophobic and she didn't want to go in the stairwell. And it was like, you have to. There's, there's just no option. You've got to, you know, you got to get out. And the only way out is down. The only way down is because it, the elevators weren't working at the time. We didn't know why mm-hmm. they weren't working. So eventually, I coaxed her into the building and was talking her, you know, down the stairs as we descended, trying to make some jokes, keep the atmosphere light, and and uh, get her through her her anxiety of uh, tight spaces. Wow. So there's a fairly orderly descent. You're going down uh, 40x floors. I mean, it, that takes a minute, and and it's kind of rigorous, I would guess. Yeah, it takes more than a minute, and it took a uh, took up almost a half an hour, I would think. Wow, half an hour to get. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I, I you know, I'm from sea level and small town, so <laughs> I really can't imagine descending forty some floors in a stairwell from tower one, but I it it occurs to me that it would not be a small thing. And so what did that particular emergency exit at the at the ground level, did that put you guys outside the building or how, how did that work? No, with them we got I mean, the, the, the stairwell descent was uh, an interesting story, and it's it, it's worth the read in, in what I wrote up. So what I did after the whole experience is I wrote the details up because a lot of people were asking a lot of questions, and I was not in a frame of mind to talk about it over and over and over again. So I yeah. just wrote it up and just you know mailed it out and, and honestly used it as a witnessing tool for about a year, maybe two years after the event because people would ask, and I would just share my uh, my written story. But when we, yeah, when we got yeah. out of the stairwell, we got out into the main lobby of the uh, of the trade center, and I still I still have haunting images of of things. I mean, the best I can describe it is if you've ever seen the Grand Canyon, you know, taking a picture of it's a waste of time. Trying to describe somebody, it, it's a waste of time. It's something you just have to experience the beauty and the wonder of of the canyon. Kind of the same, the exact opposite in the lobby of nine eleven. You, your eyes just can't. You just can't uncover or describe the amount of destruction your eyes can hold. And it's the smells, it's the cries, it's everything that goes into and everything you've seen on TV. Um, and I don't talk about mm. those things because they, they, they just bring back really bad nights. But um, you, you can't take an image of it, you can take a picture of it, and you can't, you can't adequately put it into words that are meaningful to anybody. It's, and I, I hope nobody on this listening to this podcast ever experiences anything like that. Haunting the way you describe it. And I know from the Grand Canyon, you know, you just can't fit everything that's out there into your brain. You know, it's an overwhelming kind of situation. So in that way, the contrast uh, makes a lot of sense to me. Fairly rapidly, I guess, you, you when you got to the bottom, you got out. You got out of the building. Yeah, they, they stopped. They stopped letting us out right out the building because of everything that was coming down. So they took us through the mall. Uh, attached to the Trade Center was this huge shopping complex, and it was underground. Mm-hmm. So we went out underground through the mall away from the debris and, and came out 
on the uh, on the north side of, of uh, the path area of the north north side of the mall. And when we looked up, mm-hmm. we we saw the hole in the building where the plane had hit, and we realized that had you know, we been in our offices at that time, it would the outcome would have been very different. Yeah. Were you still with the couple of guys you were had taken breakfast with during that time? Or? Yeah, well, the one guy got separated from us, uh, myself and uh, one of my other co-workers. Once we got out, again, I there's a little old historic church just outside of the Trade Center. It's still there. It, it's absolutely still intact. In fact, it was a stage. I remember it. Yeah, yeah. I got on my knees yeah. right outside that, that church and prayed again. Thank God for just his mercy and directing me. Cause I was looking to be, I mean, Pete, you always wonder what you're going to, what your mind is like in those situations. I know for a fact mm-hmm. that I, if I was on the 78th floor, we wouldn't be talking. I, I was looking to be of help. I was looking to, I'm trained in first aid. So, you know, if you, I, it was either get out of the way or be of assistance was my mindset. And I was looking for a way to be of assistance. And I just, I couldn't find any, you know, the, the, the New York first responders are a very well organized group of people. And by the time, you know, we had gotten out of the building, everything was very much staged and organized and the triage areas were set up and, and it was, you know, the best help I could be was to stay out of the way. Yeah. You know, so uh, when I got to the church, we prayed and when I got up from my knees, and this is something you'll, you'll never understand as not being in New York, but when I got up off my knees, I turned around, there was a cab with its door open in New York City, which, which is like... <laughs> Finding a unicorn, you know, it's the same exact equivalence. So, I can well imagine. Now, I'm, I've been in the city a few times, but uh, I wouldn't appreciate it like someone who tried to manage that daily. There's a cab with its door open. I'm guessing you got inside, closed the door, and said, "Giddy up!" Yeah, we did. <laughs> we, we wanted to go to New Jersey, and they wouldn't. They said all the bridges and tunnels were closed at that time, so. He took us to Penn. He was taking us to Penn Station. So he spun around and turned north, and just as we were like a block or two away, Tower Two collapsed. So Tower Two at that point was impacted. I don't know how many minutes it was. It was a number of minutes later, but it wasn't. It wasn't an hour later or anything. No, it it was. I think like right around ten minutes, fifteen minutes later. It was fairly okay, and. and Tower Two is the first one that came down, and then Tower One correct. followed. Correct. Correct. Yeah, I find that okay. kind of amazing too. The, the, the because when Tower One got hit, they evacuated Tower Two. Um, then they made the historic mistake of saying to try to clear the area because of all the people, you know, watching all the things that were happening in Tower One. They were trying to get people back up in Tower Two to kind of clear the area so they could stage the uh, the rescue effort and the flames, you know, put the fire out and stuff. So some people actually did go back up in two, but because because Tower Two was evacuated, there were men, there were much less, many less, much less people in Tower Two when it came down. So I think I think God's grace was letting people like me get out of Tower One, and and I think the whole time God was trying to minimize the the amount of carnage and the amount of people that were going to die that day. Mm-hmm. So Tower Two, I think, came down fortuitously because there were less people to be affected by it. It gave Tower One more time to be evacuated, and then Tower One came down after that. You know, I, I would guess that many, if not most, of the people who will hear our, our conversation here have some kind of a visual of New York City, and probably they have seen some of the coverage and the monuments and such as that. Even the little church there, I've I've seen. 
uh, that you mentioned. But this World Trade Center complex, which, of course, was a number of buildings uh, besides Tower 1 and 2 were the twins, obviously. And then there's a bunch of other buildings around that. I think you said there were, I mean, were, were there uh, half a million people that worked in that area every day? Um, easily. Absolutely. Easily. Okay. Um, you know, if, if you look wow. at what was going on, so Tower 2, had they been successful at falling it like a tree, would have fell right on top of the stock exchange. It just would have reached that far. And if they had gotten Tower 2 to go the other way, it would have done twice as much damage. So I think they I think they were purposeful in what they were trying to do and, and, and how they were trying to do it. Yeah. Maximum uh, casualty impact. I'm sure there is. I mean, that probably the most rich target in that term, that terms uh, that, that would be available in the States, I would guess. Yes. Wow. So Manhattan Island, again, I'm an outsider and that's uh, putting it mildly. But as I understand, this is kind of right at the tip of Manhattan Island. So you, you exited, you got out, you went north on the island and then to Penn Station. Is that where you guys ended up? Yes. And now Penn, is that's a, a subway station, correct? It's one of two main train stations into New York. Grand Central is the one from, from the north, Connecticut, Boston. Penn Station is from the south for Pennsylvania, D.C., those types of trains terminate there. Okay. So my, my trip home was to Jersey at that point because that's, that's the way I commuted in was by train. So I'm okay. looking for a train ride home at that point. Wow. So now were trains running? At, were, you, were you able to get on a train? Well, it's a you know, funny story. No. Yes and no. So just as we got into the, the train station – they announced, well, we got to a, we got to our, a Jersey train was leaving. So we, I got on the train and sat down. And at that point in time, I started I, going into shock and trying to process what just happened and what was going on. And then they announced we had to get off. The, the train was mobbed, as you could imagine. I mean, just like standing room only, people pressed against each other. Yeah, crushed in, you yes. Know, they, they announced the train wasn't going anywhere, that they're closing the train station. They're closing the station and we all had to exit. They made several announcements, but I, I had nowhere to go. I mean, where am I going to go? My office is now collapsed. I don't have any friends in the city. I don't have a car in the city. I don't, you know, there's nothing for me to do but go home. So I just sat in the train and said, well, sooner or later, this train's going to go somewhere. If not, it's as good a place to sit as any. So I might as well just stay here. So after about the third announcement, um, the train was not even a third full. It was almost empty. They closed the doors and the train went to Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So you, that was great that you uh, <laughs> took that approach. It sounds like uh, you got out of there sooner than those two thirds of people who listened to what was being said on the intercom. Had I not gotten out of there at that time, I probably wouldn't have gotten out till the next day. Oh, mercy. Which would have heightened the entire effect and made it that much more um, difficult for your family. I know we've got just about 10 minutes left. So I want to talk uh, just I've got a number of questions and we may not get to them all, which is is fine. But how long before you were reunited with your with your family, with your wife? Well, my wife picked me up at the train station. So just before we got to I went into the, the Penn, Penn Station, there was a little sports memorabilia store just outside of Penn Station is attached to Madison Square Garden. So there's a little mm. sports memorabilia store just outside of Madison Square Garden on a corner there. It's no longer there. There's, there's all kinds of funny stories around these stories, by the way, but which, which one day we'll have to talk about. 
I walked into the sports memorabilia store and, and the guy looked at me and he goes, you were there. And I said, yes, I got to use your phone. He handed me his phone. He let me make a, a phone call. After about the fifth or sixth try, I was able to connect to my uh, my home phone and was able to tell my wife I was alive. And at that point in time, she was thankful. And uh, we both cried on the phone for a little bit. And I just told her I'm going to try and get home as soon as I can. When I got to the train station, I just called her from the pay, pay phone and told her to come pick me up. And she did. Wow. Well, that was uh, a lot of grace applied to several things there. Thank God for that and for you guys being reunited. I'm going to just give you a few rapid fire questions if I can, and we don't have to rush through the answers. It's just some things that came to my mind. How has your life changed and what's different about what's important to you now? We're 18 years later here. I know it's a it's quite a while later, but I, I would expect that something like this and surviving something like this would be a game changer in terms of life. Is that right? Yes and no. Um, yes, and that things changed, and it was a great deal of heartache after nine eleven. That's a whole whole other story about financial hardship and a whole bunch of other survivors' guilt and. A whole host of other things that that happened to occur, but from a faith standpoint, at that point in time, I was a pretty strong Christian. Um, I felt pretty good about my faith and felt like I was moving in the right direction. And back then, it was the Promise Keepers movement was strong, and I just felt uh, I felt very close to God at that point in time and very connected. And in the post nine eleven world, we were given ample opportunity to talk about what our experiences were like, my, both my wife's and mine, because hers was very different than mine. Mm-hmm. We were able to give God's you know, grace to it. In fact, I do things like this because I'm a firm believer. If God gives you a story, you've got to tell it. You, you don't keep it to yourself. Mm-hmm. Yes. As hard as they are to go through sometimes, they, uh, I think they're necessary for people. I think we, I think we forget too quickly what God has done mm-hmm. for us and, and, and the grace he's given us. And I don't want to ever forget that. Yeah. So, you, yeah, I remember Promise Keepers, and that's cool that you'd mentioned that. It it was a, a movement, a men's movement, obviously, for those who don't know about it, that impacted, the, I guess, the entire nation. It was very powerful, very motivational, and swept a lot of people into seriousness about their faith and, and into a brotherhood of sorts that I, I really remember fondly, for sure. 100% right. I agree. Yeah. We're going to run out of runway here, but I'd like to make sure anything else that we haven't covered that I'd love to make sure that we mention anything that comes to mind for you or has come to mind that we haven't mentioned. And as we wrap up, I want to make sure and give people some contact or a way to get more of your story. We may get together and do another podcast, which there's probably material for 10 of those and still have a half besides that. But uh, I want to make sure and get people to the resources where they can find out more about your story. But what else have we not talked about that you'd like to mention about your experience? I know your wife wrote a book. I know you've written some testimonies, but I want to make sure and cover anything that we haven't mentioned. At the end of the day, you know, uh, I think the whole 9-11 experience, we, we were, we, we saw the equivalent of the parting of the Red Seas, you know, is what I always tell people. There, there were three high-rise buildings, skyscrapers that fell in New York City on that day. 
And none of them fell in such a way where they compromised buildings next to them, which is, if you know how close these buildings are, we're talking 100 feet apart in some cases. Mm. And to have them fall that precisely, three buildings fall that precisely in New York. There was Tower 1, Tower 2, and Tower 7. All three buildings fell in such a way. In fact, if you look at Tower 2, which fell first, it does begin to list, meaning kind of start to tilt. And then somewhere in the middle of that, it just starts, it straightens up and just falls on itself in an implosion sort of way. And there there are conspiracy theories out there that this was all planned and it was, you know, because it was too precise of a a collapse. But um, Mm -hmm. I'm not into conspiracy theories. I'm into seeing what I saw. And, you know, I saw the hand of God just bless New York, bless a bunch of people that had intent to doing maximum evil in a city and kill hundreds of thousands of innocent people to find that, you know, yes, it was tragic. You know, there were around 2,786, if I remember the exact number, people died mm-hmm. that day. And the fact that there were only 2,700 people that died that day is, is in itself a miracle because there were each building could hold 100,000 people. The, the mall around that, easily another 100,000. 100, when you think of the offices that connected to those buildings and in other related things, easily another 100,000 people. Getting off that block, mm. you're looking at another several hundred thousand people. So they were trying to kill a million people that day easily, and they didn't succeed at the end of the day. Just one question there, and then I will get that contact. Did you have to personally go through a forgiveness exercise related to those who perpetrated the, these these events. Hmm. You're the first person to ask me that. Hmm. Uh, I I I don't. I guess I forget. I don't know. I I can't answer that intelligently. I I have to think about that. I don't know that I have forgiven. I'm trying to forget, hmm. Phil, but I don't know that I've forgiven. That's a very good question. Hmm. I don't know. Well, yeah. I appreciate you telling us your story, uh, Guy. I really appreciate you and your transparency, not only in this podcast, but also in the things you've written. Really quickly, let's get the information for your wife's book and also for, uh, I think I can find the link to the more complete testimony. Is there any, if someone wanted to follow up with you personally, I think I, I can get the links to save us time. But if anyone wanted to follow up with you personally, or know more about what you're doing now, how would we send them to you? Yeah, I've got a website up. It's $1dollarapologist.net, which is probably the best way to get in touch with me. And there's a couple of blogs up there that they could kind of sort through. Certainly the 9-11 testimony is up there and uh, a few other things that might be of interest to folks. My email address is just simply my name, gyasika at gmail.com. Anybody wants to email me, feel free. Okay. G as in your first initial? Right. And last name? Y-A-S-I-K-A. Okay. And uh, the $1 apologist is the number one, followed by the word dollar, correct? All spelled out, one, O-N-E. Okay. Okay. O-N-E. That's going to help us. Thanks again for being here, Guy. And we'll follow up with you later. I'd like to get some more content from you, but I really appreciate very much you telling your story. Blessings to you, bro. This podcast made possible through the partnership of Engaging Mission Show, bringing missions home, and encouraging you to hear a message, make connections, and take action. Find out more at engagingmissions.com. Thanks for joining us for 
the FX Missions podcast from the forefront. If you'd like to find out more about FX Missions, please do so at our blog, fxmissions.com. Quite a bit of content out there. We hope you enjoy it. Also, if you'd like to rate us on iTunes or whatever podcast service you use, we would really appreciate it. And find out more about today's guest at our Facebook page. Just search for From the Forefront on Facebook. If you know of someone who should be featured on From the Forefront because of their Forefront missions experience or exploits, please reach out to us at info at fxmissions.com. Thanks again for joining us. And until next time, I'm Scott McClelland, and you have a good one.